You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, and today we're going to have a guest host. Bill Baer is a visiting fellow in governance studies. He is one of the world's most respected antitrust enforcers. He is the only person to have led antitrust enforcement at both U.S. antitrust agencies. He served as assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division of the U.S. Department of Justice and as director of the Bureau of Competition at the Federal Trade Commission. During his tenure as Assistant Attorney General, the Antitrust Division achieved tremendous success both in civil and criminal enforcement. He is an impressive antitrust expert, and you're really going to enjoy having him host this discussion. So with that, I will turn things over to Bill. Thanks, Daryl, and welcome to Tech Tank. You know, antitrust enforcement and competition policy used to be reserved for us antitrust nerds, but not anymore. Today, antitrust and and privacy have become hot button issues in the US and around the world. We debate whether the successful tech platforms like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook have too much power over our lives, too much access to our personal data, which they can monetize by selling to advertisers. We ask whether these tech platforms are adequately protecting our privacy and whether they're taking unlawful steps to prevent competing platforms from becoming successful and offering us as consumers meaningful alternatives. I should say our concerns with antitrust today are not limited to big tech. We also ask whether markets generally are too concentrated. Think about how few options we have in choosing a hospital system or an airline. We worry that farmers and ranchers are caught in a price squeeze with with middlemen having the power to suppress the prices they pay for products and force us to pay supra competitive prices. Increasingly, we question whether corporations are focusing on maximizing shareholder welfare at the expense of consumers and workers. Now, members of Congress in both the House and the Senate are also questioning whether our current antitrust laws, as interpreted by our federal courts, are up to the task of ensuring competitive markets in a 21st century tech-driven economy. The Biden administration has appointed enforcers at the Federal Trade Commission and at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division who share these concerns and are committed to making antitrust enforcement more effective. The Federal Trade Commission down on Pennsylvania Avenue is front and center on these issues. From early on in the Biden administration, there's been a lots of action. First, under acting chair Rebecca Kelly Slaughter and continuing under Lena Khan, who became the FTC chair this past June. Today, we are fortunate, most fortunate, to have FTC Commissioner Slaughter with us to talk about issues swirling around the tech platforms, antitrust and privacy, and to discuss the role the Federal Trade Commission is playing in addressing these issues. Rebecca Kelly Slaughter was sworn in as a Federal Trade Commissioner in May of 2018. She brings to the commission more than a decade of experience in competition, privacy, and consumer protection. Before joining the FTC, 
Commissioner Slaughter served on the Hill as chief counsel to Senator Charles Schumer of New York, currently the Democratic leader. She's a Yaley twice over, both as an undergrad and uh, by virtue of her law school degree. She lives today in Maryland with her husband and their four children. Becca, welcome to Brookings Tech Tech. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, from my two tours of duty at the FTC some years ago, I know at some point you need to tell the audience early on that your views today are your own and not necessarily those of the commission or any other commission. Do I remember that disclaimer correctly? That is correct, Bill. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So let's first have you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to the FTC? As you noted, before I got to the FTC, for about a decade, I worked for Senator Schumer from New York. When I worked for him, I handled a whole panoply of issues. I was on his Judiciary Committee staff, so I handled a whole lot in the Judiciary Committee space, but also tech, telecom, um, IP, antitrust, all kinds of things, some of which are squarely FTC and some of which go beyond that mission, but I always really loved the FTC oversight and subject matter portions of the work that I got to do in the Senate. Uh, And then I was very fortunate to have Senator Schumer recommend me for one of the Democratic seats on the FTC in the beginning of the Trump administration. So I've been here for about three and a half years now. You're certainly in the thick of things now. Um, I noted in introducing you that the tech platforms are the focus of much debate these days. Uh, A two-part question, why is that the case and what are the issues that the FTC in particular is focusing on? Yeah, so I think the reason they're the focus of enforcement attention, not just from the FTC, is because they are so ubiquitous in our lives. And I mean that as users of platform services from a consumer perspective, I mean that as workers, uh, I mean that as small businesses. Uh, There was a really great series of articles in the New York Times last year by uh, a woman named Kashmir Hill. And I think the title of the article was, um, I tried to live without the tech platforms, I couldn't something close to that. And and I think that sort of captures exactly why we're concerned about these things, because they're everywhere. And so we're asking really important and complicated questions about what does that mean in terms of how our markets are working or not working. The reason the tech platforms are such an object of focus for not just the FTC, but enforcers across the government and around the world is really because they are so ubiquitous. They are a part of everybody's lives, for the most part, whether we want them to be or not. And that's true whether we are uh, internet users or purchasers or workers or small businesses, whatever hat we're wearing, we basically can't escape the role of the tech platforms. And that raises really important questions about their market power, about whether the markets are working fairly for people the way they should be, um, whether our privacy is being adequately protected, whether privacy violations are being used to exacerbate market power. I think these are really critical questions that we need to be grappling to make sure that the economy is 
working the way it should be with a free market system allowing the best, uh, most innovative, most effective products to come to market and not large incumbents to dominate by virtue of their existing power. Thanks for that. Um, I, I know the FTC has a big antitrust lawsuit pending against Facebook since uh, last year. And I appreciate you can't talk about that uh, because it is a pending litigation matter. But I do know that the commission has taken actions against Facebook on at least two prior occasions using its authority to police unfair and deceptive acts of practice. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. So almost a decade ago, the FTC entered into what's called a consent decree, consent order with Facebook uh, over allegations that it was deceptive about what it was doing with user data. Um, It was allegedly, according to the consent decree, misleading people about how it was keeping their data protected and with whom it was sharing. That order required Facebook to be honest and transparent about what it was doing with user data. But fast forward, not very many years after the order was entered and the commission uncovered evidence in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal that in fact, Facebook was Uh, collecting and sharing user data in ways that were inconsistent with what it was telling people. So it violated the order. The commission ultimately in 2019 settled those allegations of order violations for $5 billion and a new order. Um, I dissented from that settlement because I didn't think that that $5 billion for Facebook, although it is an unfathomable amount of money to someone like me, for a company like Facebook, I didn't think it was gonna be adequate to deter the company from engaging in the same violations that we had already found twice. Um, One thing that I think is important about that case is that case was done on what we traditionally think of as the consumer protection side of the FTC's house, not on the competition side. But one really important lens that the FTC is working to apply to these cases is making sure that we are being careful to understand how those issues intersect with each other. In other words, being cognizant of the fact that consumer protections may not exist in a vacuum uh, absent of the role of market power, which is traditionally a competition. So I think that that's something I have been pushing for several years. I know it is something that is deeply important to our chair. And I think it's something you're going to see a lot more of from the FTC as we go forward. Well, based on what we've read in the papers and the testimony heard on the Hill just in the last couple of weeks, the concerns you had with the adequacy of that $5 billion settlement seem to be uh, increasingly validated. One of the issues, and you've written about this, is, um, is the role artificial intelligence and, and algorithm decision-making uh, plays in some of these tech platforms. You wrote about this, and you recognize there are benefits to society from uh, artificial intelligence, but you also cautioned that there are are risks of harm if these are misused. You cited evidence that algorithmic decisions can produce biased, uh, 
discriminatory and unfair outcomes in the criminal justice system and other high stakes economic spheres, including employment, credit, health care, and housing. Can you help us understand the role the FTC has in avoiding these negatives that you discussed in your article? Sure. I think this is a really important area of focus for the commission. Um, I mean, for the government and society generally, but it's something the commission is paying a lot of attention to. And specifically to, to talk about the FTC's role, I think it's helpful to zoom out a little bit and talk about the laws that the FTC enforces. The primary law that the FTC enforces is the Federal Trade Commission Act, which prohibits unfair and deceptive acts and practices and unfair methods of competition. And the concerns that we, society writ large, have have and are hearing about with respect to algorithms really sound in this concept of unfairness, which the statute defines as something that causes substantial injury that's not reasonably avoidable by the consumer and not offset by countervailing benefits. So if you take an algorithmic decision-making tool that, for example, reinforces discrimination, so produces discriminatory outcomes that uh, disadvantage, let's take, for example, communities of color, that is something that is pretty fundamentally unfair to the people who are subject to those algorithms. It causes them substantial injury. They can't avoid it. And it's very difficult to think of offsetting benefits that um, outweigh the harms of discrimination. And so that's a different way than the FTC has historically thought about applying its um, unfairness authority. But I think it is very much within the four corners of the statute and something we need to be looking at really closely. To build on that, not only should we think about what are the statutes that we enforce, we should think about what are the tools that we have to enforce them. One set of tools that we've made great use of over the last several decades is enforcement actions, where you target a particular company or particular conduct, you try to get them under order and prohibit them from doing that conduct again. Um, that's been the FTC's primary mode of operation. And it has some benefits as long as the orders actually prohibit the companies um, from engaging in the conduct again and provide clarity to the markets about what conduct is prohibited and are adequately deterrent so that other companies don't then engage in similar conduct. I think there's really good reason to question whether the approach that we have been taking in some of our orders has been having that adequate deterrent effect, both for the companies under order and for the markets generally. You highlighted Facebook as one example. I think that's a very good one, but I don't think it's by any means the only one. So in addition to enforcement actions, what other tools do we have? We have uh, a great long history of providing business guidance and consumer education, that's valuable. We also can engage in rulemaking and provide clearer ex-ante rules to the market about what kind of conduct is prohibited under the FTC Act. And I've been saying for several years that I think that this is a particularly important road for us to consider going down with respect to data surveillance issues what I think are historically thought of as privacy issues, but extend beyond privacy, um, implicate market power too. I think this is an area where business and 
consumers and workers alike could benefit from clear rules and clear guidance that stop prohibited conduct before it starts rather than waiting for a complicated and lengthy enforcement action to help provide any clarity to the markets about what might be prohibited. That's very helpful. So I understand this right. You're basically saying there are at least two tracks the FTC can follow. One is the standard suing a company that allegedly does something wrong. But the other thing one can do is provide form of rules that channel competition and avoid some of the adverse outcomes that we we see from tech platform behavior these days. Do I have that about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, there's a there's a little bit of an allergy, I would say, to the FTC engaging in rulemaking that I think is really misplaced. You know, the concern that I hear is the FTC shouldn't be allowed by regulatory fiat to impose value judgments that are better left to Congress. And let me be very clear. I think there is an important role for Congress to play in updating our competition laws, in passing a federal privacy or data abuse legislation. I I am here for big, bold congressional action in those areas. But I also don't think we need to wait for congressional action to make the best use of all the tools we have in our statutory toolbox. And rulemaking is absolutely one of them. Um, And I don't agree with the idea that it would require substituting our value judgments for those of Congress, because I think the choice not to act is a value judgment. I think if we choose not to consider open a rulemaking record and consider uh, whether there are potential rules that would be justified by the evidence and the prevalence of conduct in the market, then we are making the value judgment that the markets are working well as they are right. I also think we can't, by regulatory fiat, do anything. We can only write rules that clarify Uh, what conduct is prohibited by the FTC Act to begin with. In other words, we cannot make illegal something that would otherwise be legal. We can just provide ex-ante clarity about what that conduct is in order to help businesses comply, protect users, and create clarity in the markets. Switching over to recent action by the White House, the Biden-Harris administration issued an executive order on competition issues. That order said, we need to look across the whole of the federal government and the decisions that are made and take into account the importance of competition in uh, providing benefits to consumers and providing benefits to workers. Uh, The Biden executive order asked uh, the FTC and the Department of Justice in particular to take a sec- second look at merger policy, at, uh, competition in labor markets, including the effect of non-compete agreements imposed by employers, and do not poach agreements that uh, we have found over the past some companies enter into that prevent the free movement of labor. But that executive order also directs agencies all across the government to consider the effect their actions have on consumers, on competition, and and on labor. Can you tell us a little bit about what role the FTC is playing in implementing that executive order? 
Well, the first thing I'll say is I think that the executive order is a tremendous, tremendously important step forward from the administration in terms of recognizing the role competition policy has throughout the government and not um, relegating it only to competition agencies. I think our uh, laws and our application of them have reflected that for a long time, but without a coherent policy prioritizing competition across the government, it's much harder for disparate agencies that don't sort of naturally think about competition first to apply that lens. So I think the president and the administration should be really, really congratulated on such a terrific accomplishment and clearly articulated vision of competition. In terms of the FTC's role, um, I noted that the executive order was very careful not to direct the FTC as an independent agency to do anything, but instead to softly encourage us to do a whole number of important things that are squarely within our wheelhouse as competition enforcers. One of them, which you noted, was to take another look at merger policy, and I think we have been, been doing that already, and I look forward to doing it more. We did, for example, withdraw the uh, 2020 vertical merger guidelines that um, were passed under the previous administration and from which I dissented because I thought they were overly permissive of vertical mergers, inadequately skeptical of claimed benefits of those mergers. And I think that um, they really needed a new revamp. I look forward to a big rethink of uh, the guidelines across the board, which I think is coming. You know, Chair Khan has also put out a whole bunch of um, blogs and statements about the ways we are uh, beefing up our second request and merger review practices to make sure that we are really um, seeing, I guess the way I'd put it is the trees for the forest. We have a big, um, big forest of mergers that are, that have been coming down the pipe and making sure that we are actually getting to look at each of them adequately and understand the competitive implications is really important. And so I'm excited about the steps she's taken in that direction. Um, the FTC also passed a right to repair policy statement in July that built on the right to repair report that we put out when I was the acting chair um, that talked about thinking about the competition and consumer protection lenses of repair restrictions and how they can inhibit innovation and entry and also hurt consumers who have bought products that they want to be able to use. And then, you know, you pointed to non-competes. I think this is a super important area. I find absolutely heartbreaking the stories of people who are locked into jobs that aren't working for them and unable to get fair value and good competition for their labor because of non-compete clauses um, that they are almost always unilaterally forced to sign. They don't really get the benefit of bargaining for them. And they really restrict labor mobility, which is a huge, huge issue if we wanna have a competitive economy. So I'm excited about all of those various steps and, you know, and I think much more to come. You make a good point when we talk about competition, we often think about, you know, ensuring consumers get the benefit of competition for price, quality, and innovation. And I think the criticism of antitrust enforcement has been that we don't 
look enough at the upstream markets about what uh, retailers, fast food uh, uh, providers can do that restrict the ability of a worker flipping burgers to move from one restaurant uh, to another. And that has a tremendous depressing effect on the ability to get a, a living wage. And it is laudatory that the FTC and the White House are focusing laser-like on those issues. But I want to move down from the FTC and 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and go six blocks east up Pennsylvania Avenue, Capitol Hill, where there's a lot going on involving the FTC. My first question relates to funding. Many in Congress think the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice are underfunded. I'm going to assume you agree with that, but can you tell us why your current resources are inadequate and what your agency would do with additional monies? Sure. I Let me start by saying, yes, I wholeheartedly agree that we are dramatically underfunded. And in fact, every time I have appeared in Capitol Hill over the last three and a half years, which is now many times, I almost always focus my remarks on our funding deficit, because I think we can't say it loud enough. Uh, it is a really important data point that has always stuck with me that the FTC had about 50% more employees at the beginning of the Reagan administration than we do today. And think about what that means in terms of how our economy has grown, the scope of demands on enforcement have grown, and we are operating with our hands really substantially tied behind our back. And that means not just can we bring fewer cases and do fewer investigations, but we have to make really difficult decisions in how we resolve those investigations because we don't have the money maybe to pursue the best outcome for workers, for consumers, for the economy. Um, and maybe we are forced into taking settlements that we think are uh, less than adequate because they're not, because they're more cost effective. And, and that's, not, that's the kind of decision-making that can have, create a, a very problematic negative feedback loop. Similarly, even as we have been underfunded, you know, in terms of what our workforce is, I referenced the demand going up on our agency, and that has been true uh, over the last 40 years, just in terms of, you know, think about what a privacy case might've looked like in 1980. Um, there was certainly no Facebook, there were no digital dossiers, there was no data surveillance the same way there is today. Um, that's true, but also in real numbers, our workload has gone up. If you take the competition side, for example, where the numbers are easiest to track, we were getting almost twice as many merger filings annually before the pandemic as we had been 10 years earlier. And now in the last year, we got almost twice as many as that. So merger filings are up dramatically, even if you just say double, which is not the whole number, but if you just said double, we have about flat staffing reviewing mergers and double the number of cases to review as thoroughly as it needs and deserves to be done with that kind of underfunding. So those are some examples of it, of the problems. Um, 
when you say, why are we underfunded? I will give you my cynical view that that has been a very strategic decision over a number of years to um, give the FTC the appearance of the authority to intervene without the funding to make it actually possible. Um, and that's convenient for people who would like the FTC to sit on the sidelines a little bit more. But I don't want us to be doing that. What would we do with more money? Um, a lot. I could, I could think of a lot of things that we could do. One that I would prioritize pretty highly is doing less of that settling instead of suing that I was talking about. Making sure that we're really fighting for the right outcomes in cases, not the efficient ones. It's a short-term cost that has long-term benefits in terms of applying discipline to the markets. The second is, I think, open more investigations. I would also love to see us use our study capacity more. The FTC has a relatively unique statutory tool that allows us to study markets, use subpoenas to get non-public information and study markets, and that can provide enormous public value both to us as an expert agency, but to academics, to Congress, to the public generally to understand how markets are working. But every dollar we spend now on a 6B, which is what those, that study authority is called, is a dollar that might come away from enforcement. And that's a very difficult trade-off. So I would love to see more of that as well. Do you uh, have a sense that those concerns are shared on the Hill and that progress is being made towards enhanced appropriations? I do. I do think we're in good shape on that. You know, when I started at the FTC, our budget was a little bit over $300 million annually, which, by the way, I want to go back, you know, when we're thinking about the kinds of companies that we're investigating and pursuing, our total budget was a little bit more than $300 million annually. That's like, I don't know, 15 minutes of profit for one of these companies. So I'm just making up that number, but it's probably not all that far off. That's a real mismatch in terms of resources, particularly because we're not going one-to-one -one with companies. It's the FTC against the entire economy. So I think those numbers are pretty staggering. Anyway, it was a little over 300 million. Now it's approaching closer to 400 million. That is an existential difference for us. I think it's a drop in the bucket of federal spending and one that really will pay dividends for the American people. But I think that we could continue to go up very dramatically and still put all of that money into really good use. Sounds good. You know, um, another area I know the Federal Trade Commission is dealing with Congress involves uh, a setback the FTC suffered in the Supreme Court earlier this year. As I understand it for years, indeed, for decades, the federal courts had upheld the FTC's ability to require companies that ripped off consumers to pay back money for those who were injured by the bad behavior. I think the technical term we use is consumer redress. But earlier this year, the Supreme Court reinterpreted the FTC's authority and decided, however worthwhile those actions are and have been, that Congress did not intend to give you the ability to require law violators to, to pull consumer redress to return illegal gains to harm consumers. Now, I know you've testified that that Supreme Court decision deprived the FTC of its strongest tool to help consumers. What are the prospects 
for Congress restoring the authority the courts thought for a long time, the FTC had. Well, look, this should be a no-brainer for Congress. There is almost nothing more important for us to do that should be more uncontroversial than getting money back to people who were harmed, depriving companies of the ill-gotten gains from illegal conduct. That should just be, you know, apple pie, baseball, and consumer redress. So I'm a little shocked that it has taken this long to move forward on it. I think that I will put back on my my hat from years of working as a staffer on Capitol Hill. And with that experience, I understand that even apple pie and baseball can become controversial um, when they're put into statutory language. So, you know, there's nothing easy. I think that the Chamber of Commerce and its allies that have been lobbying hard against this bill really should be ashamed of of that. I think it is it is really disappointing, although perhaps not surprising, to see them so vigorously defending protecting illegal conduct by large corporations. Um, and I'm hopeful, I will remain an optimist, that the um, common sense and greater good will win out and that the bill that passed the House will eventually pass the Senate and restore the FTC's authority to where it has been understood on a bipartisan basis um, to be for 40 years. Well, as you say, it's a little hard to defend the proposition that behavior that has been found to be unlawful, to have injured consumers and um, wrongfully uh, increased the profits of a company, that somehow those wrongful profits should not be returned to consumers. I get that. You know, there are are, though, a number of other proposals pending in Congress that would affect the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department's antitrust enforcement? And to sort of set up this question, I think you can put them into two big buckets. The first bucket would amend the antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, uh, the FTCA Act, to make it easier for the antitrust enforcers to challenge mergers that risk injuring consumers. It would make it less difficult for the antitrust enforcers to challenge conduct that injures rivals and risk creating or enhancing monopoly power. So bucket one is sort of a, a broad change to the antitrust laws. Bucket two includes the proposals that are focused much more specifically on the tech platforms. It would limit you know, large size platforms from Amazon with self referencing its, its product. Uh, it would deal with uh, one of the 6B studies you were talking about with this notion of Pac-Man acquisition by putting the burden on a large platform when it is gobbling up some startup, Instagram and WhatsApp come to mind, to show that this will not uh, risk competition going, going forward. Some of these proposals would mandate data portability and interoperability, so it's easier to move from platform A to platform B. The, the model for that, I think, is the FCC in 2003, when it basically said a consumer's phone number is the consumer's phone number, and you can port your phone number 
and go to a different carrier if you want, whether it was a landline uh, or a mobile phone. And that stimulated competition among phone company providers, like something we had never seen before. So my long-winded lead into my question is that, while I appreciate the FTC has not taken formal position on these bills, how do you see the pros and cons of bucket one broader antitrust reform versus sector-specific focus on the tech platforms, the notions that I lumped into my bucket two? I think these are both really, really important efforts. One of the things that I get anxious about when it comes to discussion of the competition problems related to tech platforms is I don't want anyone to be under the mistaken impression that that is the only place where we have competition problems in this country. Um, I worry sometimes that over-focus on the tech platforms is to the exclusion of the vast and profound problems in virtually every other market, but to cite a few, healthcare, hospitals, agriculture, telecom, airlines. I mean, it goes across the economy. So I think it is really, really important that we be focusing across the board. Um, and to that end, I'll point out that last year, I think the FTC filed 28 different merger challenges, which is the highest number in decades. And one of those cases was the the case against Facebook. But I think every single other one was in a different market or industry. And I think that is something we need to continue to, to pay attention. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I am here for all of the improvements to the law. I think we need across the board antitrust reform, reduce the burdens on enforcers, shift the burden to merging parties, um, make it easier to pursue any competitive conduct cases. But I think it is also fair to say that the tech platforms in particular merit specific attention. Um, I think we can do both. I just want us to actually do both and not one at the exclusion of the other. Well, that's also a short-winded way of saying you really need the extra dollars uh, appropriated by Congress in order to do your, do your job well. Correct. All right, let's talk about the commission for a minute. You recently lost your FTC colleague, Rohit Chopra, to an important new job as head of the Consumer Financial Protection Board. President Biden has nominated privacy expert Alvaro Bedoya from Georgetown Law School to replace him. But it's uncertain how long it will take to get him through that Senate confirmation process. I know that from firsthand experience. It took me about 10 months to get through in 2012 uh, to go over to the antitrust division at, at the Justice Department. But in the interim, you're going to have two Democratic commissioners, yourself and Chair Khan, and two Republican commissioners. On a number of matters since Chair Khan came on board, and there were three Dems and two Republicans, the vote on policy changes was three to two with the three Dems uh, in support and the two Republicans in opposition. How challenging is it going to be for the commission with just four commissioners who don't always uh, agree on some of the policy changes that are being debated? Well, look, I know from my time as acting chair that having a 2-2 commission is not as good as having a 3-2 commission. It is challenging. Um, you would rather have a functioning majority. 
especially if you are focused on the sort of big structural changes that I know the chair is committed to and that I strongly support. So there are certainly some things that are going to be harder to do, but I do not think that means that there is nothing that the commission can do. And I will cite a couple examples. During my time as acting chair, the commission filed a challenge to a um, vertical nascent competition case merger, um, which is that's like for antitrust nerds, two hot button words, vertical and nascent competition that will tell you that it is a extremely cutting edge case. Um, it's really important. And we got that filed on a 4-0 basis. Um, we also put out that right to repair report that I referenced recently. Um, and then we were able to follow up since Chair Khan has been there on a bipartisan basis on many of those things. So the right to repair report evolved into a right to repair policy statement that passed 5-0. Last week, we um, passed the ISP report that talked about uh, the data practices of large broadband internet service providers, and we passed that on a unanimous 4-0 basis. So I think there's lots of reason to be optimistic about the things that the commission can get done. Uh, and at the same time, we will be eagerly anticipating Professor Bedoya's arrival. I think he will be a really tremendous addition to the commission. He's extremely smart, very thoughtful, and provides a perspective that, that I think we otherwise don't necessarily have. So I think it'll help really round us out, and we can't wait to get him here sooner rather than later. Becca, this may be an appropriate time in which to end the podcast, to thank you. You've been most generous with your time and most insightful with your remarks. It's nice to have another antitrust nerd to talk to. Uh, mm -hmm. We hope you'll come back and join us again soon on Tech Day. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. This has been another episode of Tech Tank. Please follow us on our other Tech Tank podcasts and also follow our Tech Tank newsletter. I'm Bill Baer, visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.